Kate, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> I am the head of marketing for the Sheet Society. Okay. Head of marketing, Sheet Society. You got, we were talking about getting into this business earlier on. Mm-hmm. It's always very funny to see people's backgrounds because I think I was saying that a lot of people have had the classic RMIT Bachelor of Comms. It's either PR, media, or marketing as the major. You went PR. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pad, you a girl? Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> first role out of uni was at the YMCA in 2013. Oh, wow. What Research. drew you? <laughs> <laughs> what what drew you to studying comms and PR? What was sort of the personality traits you found at high school that you were like, okay, I'm just going to do that? Well, it's actually a, it's a pretty embarrassing answer, to be honest. I, a girl I really liked when I was growing up was doing it. <laughs> and she said to me, I'm really good at talking and communicating. I reckon PR will be fun. I'm going to give it a go. And I sort of went, okay, cool. I would mm. do that too. Um, I think I was 18 working full-time in a bar, basically wagging most of high school, not going, just wanting to work. And I pretty much went, yeah, great. I don't have to talk to a, you know, a counsellor. I don't have to do anything like that. I can just pretty much go straight into it. Yeah. So I wasn't a very good student and I wasn't <laughs> very good at attending high school. And I all I knew is I need to get a degree yeah. to do anything. And that was literally my ticket in and out. Okay. And... So you, this girl that you idealized, was she same age or a little bit older? Or Yeah, would- she was the same age as me. Yeah. Um, and, we're, you know, we're still friends today, but she she was probably really similar to me, but she was also probably somebody that I really looked up to. So it was to do something that she was doing for me was probably, you know, at 17, 18 kind of all I was really thinking about. <laughs> um, but I was also, yeah, I was in a bar and I was, just living the life of an 18-year-old, not really thinking about my career. I definitely wasn't somebody at high school that was concerned about um, what I wanted to do. I actually straight out of high school went and studied fashion, went to oh, right. Melbourne School of Fashion and started studied fashion, dropped out of that, went and started dabbling in architecture and design, then kind of didn't really like that and then jumped across into PR. Uh-huh. So I had like a lot of like different sort of things that I did and then really went, right, I'm just going to do one thing, going to get a degree. And I knew as soon as I got into the workforce, I would be fine. Okay. And I feel like you were saying earlier off air, something similar to myself, you got into uni, you probably had this mindset, I get a sense you got a similar mindset where you just want to work. And um, I felt at least at uni, yes, some units were great and some were shit and I would skip them or just not go to lectures or whatever and I just wanted to get straight into the workforce. Yeah. And a lot of my learning was by doing in the workforce. For me, it was in hospitality initially. Mm. Yeah. And I actually got to the end of my degree, which was in accounting, banking and finance, like double degree at Swinburne, and I got into an accounting firm and I was like, wow, this is <laughs> not what I'm going to do at yeah. all. Yeah. So you know, looking back on that period, what do you wish younger Kate knew at that point in her life? I think it was probably at a time where I could have learnt a lot more. I could have sponged a lot more. I think I probably thought to myself at the time, I'll be right, I'll work it out. I think if I probably had have had my time again, I probably would have actually tried to really enjoy uni. I Like I was working full-time at YMCA in my third year. So even when we were doing the intern um Oh, the semester. Yeah. I didn't even need to do that. I was working full time. I was rolling out websites with the, um, well, assisting rolling out websites with the team. And so at that point I was quite, um, I was just in my mind, I was like, I just got to get a job. 
And I probably would say, cool your jets, you'll be fine. <laughs> like it's <laughs> going to be okay. Yeah. I think I've been already always really ruthless in wanting to succeed. And I think probably I would say to my early 20s is it will work out. It yeah. always works out. It's the one thing that I've learned. And I used to hate it when I'd hear that when I was older. So I'm sorry of older people saying that to me, but it actually will. Yeah, and so, so you, I wish I hadn't known that. You're an A-type individual. It's probably a, something that you're not going to be able to withhold, but be aware of maybe mm. later in life. Yeah. Uh, doing 10 things at once. That's yeah. the status quo, right? Yeah. I drive my team insane, um, but 100%. Yeah. And I think even now learning that slow down, it'll work out. You are good at what you do. You don't need to continually be proving yourself and, and um, trying to do more and more and more. What you're actually doing is okay. Yeah. And I think that that's, that is obviously the personality trait that I have, but it is something that I think I wish I had known a lot younger. So straight out of the gate after uni, we've got Glenora City Council, Monash Uni, Origin, and it sort of seems like they are PR and brand-heavy mm. roles. Up until about 2015, I think I was mentioning before, uh, Hamish Paint, you took more of a deviation to content, digital, e-com, and then eventually we've got Frank Green and now Sheet Society as yeah. head of head of marketing. Tell me about that gradual nuance. Was it the fact that you were just learning about the differences in the roles and you realized PR or comms heavy stuff wasn't for you and you were more interested in the other side of things or is it just that you wanted to learn about those types of roles? Um, I would say from the outset, I fell into a lot of my roles. So I won't take credit for me putting things down on a vision board and then following them. <laughs> I, I fell into a lot of my roles. Yeah. Um, but when I was at Monash, um, so I was doing crisis comms at Monash. That was one of my big things there. And so, you know, of course, me being me, I didn't want to just do PR and media. I wanted to do the extreme of media, which was crisis communication. So I in my time there, that was one of the biggest um, learning curves that I have ever really, I'd say, gone through. Um, I was, we were managing, um, there was some hectic kind of things going on. We had, um, it was at the time when all the planes were kind of crashing. And so we had students that were dying. We had sexual assault going on. We had a... Um, planes crashing. You know, when all the like MH... Oh, wow. We had, so we had a few um, students there. We had, um, when the wall fell down outside Melbourne University, we had a lecturer oh, who was wow, killed yeah. then. We had, um, it was a time when higher education was being, um, going through parliament and they were talking about increasing the fees and making, uh, taking like sort of Commonwealth supported places out. So we had lots of people protesting at the faculties. Um, so it was a lot of, you know, 5am starts, um, journalists calling. A lot of the time I was on the other end of an, a really aggressive, angry journalist who was trying to get to the bottom of what was going on. So it was a very different type of media. It wasn't, I wasn't ringing up pitching. Occasionally we were for, I did the um, medical faculty. So at times I would be oh, yeah. calling up saying, you know, we've got something coming out with bionic eye or something like that. But most of the time it was angry journalists ringing saying, because universities are political, really political places. So yeah. um, what's going on? What's happening here? We want the VC on to talk about whatever. So that really was an eye-opener to, oh, hang on, work can be hectic and work can be negative and work can be very um, personally impacting. Okay. Um, so after I did that, I realized, um, and I, and my partner at the time was also a crisis comms manager. Really? So both of us had it at home. And so I, at the time I went, you know what? Um, I can't, 
I can't be this. I can't do 10, 15 years of crisis communication. It will drive me insane. So I um, took a voluntary redundancy and just had a couple of, year, a couple of months, sorry, um, just trying to work out what next. Yeah. And that's when um, a girlfriend of mine who was heading up brand at Origin Energy said, um, come over and work with me and let's just deviate your career completely. So I just jumped into that <laughs> and really, yeah, one thing's led to another. Wow. Yeah, the crisis comms thing, uh, there's always a role I don't know if you'd agree with this, but there's always a role that you have at some point in your career early on that really defines the areas you just yeah. won't go. Yeah. That role was, um, you know, now I don't, I look at things very objectively now. If we're doing anything we're doing, even at the Sheet Society for product lines coming in, I will have a very objective mindset about it, which has been crafted really from Monash and doing crisis yeah. comms. But even the way that I look at kind of mini situations that might occur inside the business, I've got such a different mindset and objective view of it now, I think, because I'm so used to from those years at Monash of things just going real wrong. And um, <laughs> yeah. and and also kind of waiting for something to um, happen that I would have to quickly pivot. So well, it's actually, when you think about it, the perfect period of time in a career to develop what is needed sometimes in startup land mm. oh yeah you name it it went wrong at Monash and um <laughs> there was lots of things that I did that I look back now and go if that hadn't have happened I you know I now I go through a press release with a time fine tooth comb now because of yeah. you know what happened over those years with press releases and stuff so just all sorts of things that have really um sharpened kind of I guess my senses in that area when you think about so there's one two three four five six so there's about seven or eight different roles sometimes multiple at organizations and you know you've had you've basically had about nearly 10 years in the game you'd say um, there was, it's probably about 12. So 12. a few of these I don't put on because I was studying at uni <laughs> and I yeah. was also at high school. So um, I don't probably, I would probably count it as maybe 10 years. Yeah. So we, we've got at least a decade now. By now, as a head of marketing, you've, I, I can't kind of look at it as like your golden principles. And I was curious as to like, what are the defining things that you look to coach your staff on principle wise and always come back to when it comes to marketing? I think first and foremost, the big thing is that we are humans at the end of the day and we have to approach it that way. We have to be kind. We have to be caring. We have to be that type of person. That is the first fundamental thing that I kind of try to do. I'm really lucky at the Sheet Society. We've got founders that are um, really unlike any other founders and entrepreneurs I've met before, they are really kind people and they're really generous people and that makes a hell of a difference. And mm. so trying to instill that into the team as well, that we don't have to be cutthroat. We just do good shit and it works. And so trying to do that and make everything fun and human is a really big thing for me. I think that's how when we get the best out of people. Mm. Um, and I don't always get it right and I don't pretend that I do. Um, there are times when I come in really stressed and the team can see that and I try really hard for them not to say it and they do and <laughs> um, they probably then emulate that back to me and stuff. So I try to kind of catch myself on that and we def I definitely try to keep open and honest, transparent kind of communication going on. But that's really what I think the heart of a good marketer is, is somebody who's real, honest and human. And I think mm. then it all just flows so naturally out So humility, kill them with kindness. 
Yeah, I mean, there'd be definitely times I say my agency would say she's not very kind. Um, <laughs> there'd be times, and I think there has to be times for it. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we I think a lot of this, what we do is built on relationships. Yeah. But do you ever think about why you went in-house versus agency? Uh, yeah, very, very clearly know the answer to that. It <laughs> is that I could only do one thing. I can't okay. context switch. I context switch enough in one brand, let alone trying to do that across the board. Yeah. I can see the value in it. Um, and that's why I lean so heavily on agencies. But I wouldn't, I mean, maybe as I got more and more senior, I'd probably maybe look to it, but I can't imagine myself ever being in an agency. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. It is tough. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like I've done, I've done 10 years of tough. So I don't really <laughs> think that I need to kind of go and sweat it out in an agency. <laughs> so we were saying before the head of marketing slash CMO role today is part, well, mainly brand strategists, I, I think, because you've always got performance marketers, but you obviously have to have some insight as to what performance marketing, uh, good performance marketing versus bad performance marketing. You've got to almost be a little bit of a data analyst, financial analyst, and now mm. more than ever a people person. Mm. That's probably like the number one component of it. You become less of a marketer, so, you know, by just managing the sheer amount of people you've got. When you think about your toolkit on a day-to-day -day basis, what is the number one thing that you're looking at before 12? Oh, Shopify in the morning. <laughs> That's my big one. <laughs> Shit, we made the money. <laughs> um, I have a pretty good sort of understanding if, if what our revenue looks like to what our spend would be. So I don't typically need to day-to-day -day look in the dashboards. I have a pretty good understanding. If I wake up in the morning, look at Shopify, I kind of know what's going on. Mm. Um, so I'd probably um, sometime throughout that day just be checking on a few numbers. I've got a really amazing agency. So I, and I've been working with them. I worked with them at Frank Green and I brought them across to the Sheet Society as well. So we've got a really good cadence with the way we work. So I am pretty much in tune with what would be going on. Um, yeah. Even if I'm not day to day, Make my job's a bit hard day to day to be in Google dashboards or to be yeah, in Facebook dashboards. I've obviously like, I've got people that do that, but I try as much as I can to be on the tools with them. I don't mm. think anyone really respects anyone that can't actually do the job. But they would be doing the job better than me. Yeah. 100% are doing it better. They're specialists in their areas. And we've got a phenomenal team at the Sheet Society. I am in awe of them all the time. And I think that I probably, every single day is different for me. There'll be days when I'm in leadership meetings or I'm over with agency meetings or I'm doing one-on-ones with the team. Um, PR. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've got lots of agencies, so there's lots of that kind of going on. And I'm context switching every day. Yesterday I was in the store VMing something, changing it around, um, doing some sort of styling advice with people. Like I, my days are so varied. They're not probably what they used to be a couple of years ago when if I was performance marketing, I was in the dashboards, in analytics, you know, having a look at trends and stuff like that. I'm very much probably now coaching people to do that. Yeah. And really sometimes they're coaching me as well. I, our, like some of our team is so amazing and you know they haven't been doing it for that long and yeah. so they're really impressive high achievers at the sheet society yeah. so if you think about you mentioned before about the agency who do you have internally at sheet society like what particular roles or specializations and then what do you think is best for a brand to lean on an agency for mm. Um, so we have an e-com specialist. Um, we have a um, an e-com coordinator. We have a marketing coordinator. We have a content creator. We have um, a digital marketing manager. We have a um, senior digital designer. We have a creative lead. We have a mid-weight designer. Um, 
I've got external copywriting, I've got external PR, performance marketing, SEO, and full stack development external. Okay. So um, I, this is a really interesting one because I've had a lot of people say, oh, I can do performance marketing internally. And I think coming from that background of performance marketing for years and really growing from startup to medium-sized businesses, I don't, I don't believe it. I don't, I've, don't, I've never met anyone who really can do performance marketing the way that an agency can, and especially an agency who has across multiple um, accounts. So they can mm. say, okay, if my CPM is rising here, great, I'm seeing that trend across multiple accounts. That's why. So things like that, I think the think tank that you get in agencies from them being able to draw upon lots of different experiences, as well as having deep like, connections in with Google and Facebook directly, you can't get internally. Really? Um, I, I've definitely, I've heard lots of people be really proud of some of their results. And I just think that if you went to an agency, you could l- level that up so much more. Yeah. So I, I do think there is, there's probably, yeah, I honestly, I, yeah, I would be, it would it take me a lot to get me over the line that that would be a good idea. But actually, you know, when you when you speak about it too, and the more I've thought about it, there's less IP in performance marketing in comparison to say brand, creative, and hundred percent. Our agency don't actually really have to. I mean, they have to understand our brand and they have to understand sort of the ethos of what we're working to. But they don't have to be brand marketers. They just have to be very smart, analytical people. They need to understand. Okay, if I increase the frequency here, I'm going to push this ad this way. If I change it and do this over here, this impact Mm. is going to be like that. So it's not so much about the understanding the brand, but it's understanding how to reach people and how to convert people. And that is, that's the science that I think you get from an agency. What get internally smart digital marketers on the other end who are going, hey guys, if you do that, it's actually going to negatively impact the brand. You're hitting the person three or four times with that ad. I'd prefer once or twice and I want to hit them with this. Yeah. Okay. So I think that the actual strategy obviously needs to sit in-house, but the the execution needs to be external. With, with agencies at large, there's been a big change because of COVID, obviously. The big four have, they were decimated due to COVID. I think 30% average redundancies was what we saw. So there's a lot of people out and about in the industry. There's a lot more independence, particularly large independence. And I was curious, every time I've gotten a marketer in here, what do you think agencies could be doing better for their clients as the years go on, particularly in the next two years? What are the things, the services, the expectations that you would prefer to see more of yeah. of agencies. The agencies that I work well with to the agencies that I don't work as well with are the ones that stop and think about what the client's saying. Um, the client is with day-to-day with the customer, speaking to the customer, understanding their brand. There are some people out there that are purest of their brand and start, struggle to see things, um, I guess, holistically. So I get that for agencies yeah. that's hard. Yeah. But relationships with clients and having a deep understanding of what they're trying to do and also who they are and how they work I don't think you can go past that. That has to be the number one thing that agencies need to look for. With the reason that I brought my agency from Frank Green across to Sheet Society is because the way that we crafted what we did at at Frank Green was us working together and coming up with a strategy that worked for both us as a relationship, but then us on the account. Mm. And that, that is so important. And when I get you know, I get agencies emailing me all the time, come over, come over. There's no way in hell. Yeah. Like I've got such a strong relationship with this agency, but I also, they have a very deep understanding of how I market, how what my growth strategy is, and then also what the founders want because mm. we've taken them, them on that journey. So I think a lot of the time agencies probably need to stop and think about the client a little bit more. And I know that's hard because I f- they probably say, I feel like that's all we do. 
But it's actually, again, I come back to that, like, are you doing it on a human level? Are you actually crafting a relationship with these people? What does that come back to, do you think? Is that simply just the amount of contact, conversations, the type of conversations you're having with the agency? Is it the way that you guys communicate? For example, is it being able to chat with them on Slack? Having a shared Slack yeah, channel. Yeah, I've like, been trying to force them to do Slack for years and they won't have a bar of it because <laughs> I think they know that I just have direct access to them. Yeah. Um, but it is about being, I think, really open and honest. I'm really honest about um, margins. They can look at revenue from Shopify. They can look at best performing um, products. They can get into the back of GA. Uh, we don't have a problem sharing our financials with them. I think that's a big one. People, I think, get really scared. Like, we don't want the agency to know it's in the best interest if we do better because they do better. So for me, right, okay. I don't care about them seeing the financials. I think that helps. They then feel like they're an extension of our team rather than agency that we're keeping off the side. Okay. We don't have, you know, sometimes the, there can be these sort of, I, I definitely have it. I get onto the phone with an agency and I think, oh, here we go. Like it's going to be a bit tension and there's going to be a bit of, we don't have that at all. Um, so I think it's got a lot to do with bringing them on the journey. Last week they were in our warehouse and we talked to them through our whole logistics process. We walked all through our product lines and I spoke to them about our core ranges and our signature lines and what the differences are and really took them on that journey. Sent, we send them product, sleep in the product, actually get a feel for it. Right, so when they are, when I'm saying to them, hey, our cotton is amazing, we really need to push it, they've been sleeping in it for two months. And mm. so they're like, yeah, cool, get it. I understand it. I love it. So I think it really comes back to intrinsically, if, you, if you've got people on board your product and understanding what you're trying to do and on the journey, it's so much easier. And you as an agent, like this is something I read in David Ogilvie's book recently, is um, you as an agency communicating what you've said to the client, like we want your product, we want to be able to try it. I think he had this line that like you should exclusively shop at your clients' stores, products, et cetera, mm. once you bring them on as a client because you should know the product intrinsically. Yeah, and also want it, like really yeah. believe in it. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was a very interesting, a very obvious insight, but just, you know, to hear mm. it for someone else is quite interesting. The product, I know you're a big brand marketer and you're very keen about new products, <laughs> launching new products. Um, yeah. You're in a market. It's direct-to-consumer, so you have that advantage. Um there's a big emphasis on product inf- differentiation. So I was curious, what are the key areas that you see Sheet Society developing into over the coming years in particular? Um, well, I think first and foremost, we're a sheet business and we'll always be a sheet business. So we're going to do okay. bedding and we're going to do bedding well, but we're not going to diversify out and start doing sleepwear. Um, so our founder, Haley is really clear on we just do one thing and do it well. Don't try to do everything. We've seen like so many of our competitors are suddenly going to, you know, we're going to do sleepwear and we're going to do cushions and we're going to do throws and we're going to do all these things. Really, if you just do your line well, that's enough. And yeah. I really agree with that because when I first got there, I thought, you know, let's diversify the product line. Let's do da, 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 da. She's like, let's just do one thing really well. And it's so strong now to um, do it well. Customers know that if they want to get good sheets, just go to the Sheet Society and you'll get yeah. good sheets. You, like we don't have to, there's no sort of fluff around it. It's just fundamentally at its core, the product is strong. So things like putting, um, you know, invisible zippers on a zip, well, it just makes it so much easier that a customer can zip their quilt cuss- their quilt up instead of doing little buttons yeah, at the no, end. I've they, never understood that. They, it sounds like such a small thing, but the impact of that is so large. Yeah. Um, 
and you know our deep pillow folds, our deep elastic on on fitted sheets, so you can get it right in under your um, mattress. Those, I guess, USPs are so um, strong for us. But then sitting on top of that is a brand positioning that mm. means that we can't really be copied. We, people can go about put zippers on their quilt covers. Great, you can definitely try and do that, but you won't be able to copy what the essence of what the sheet society is. Yeah. So that cool, calm, collected, effortlessly cool, very humble kind of approach that the brand has can't easily be replicated. And that really is the difference between having, I guess, product features and benefits that can be easily copied to a brand positioning that sits ourselves very differently. We've been pretty lucky to have quite a few D2C brands in. Actually, yesterday I was interviewing, um, I don't know if you heard of them, Pear, sock brand, new direct-to-consumer no. sock brand. It's, it's This whole area fascinates the hell out of me because of what you can do at a product or R&D level. Like this brand created their own thread like a new mm-hmm. type of thread in the world yeah. to make the socks comfier, better, less stinky, all these yeah. little things that you can – and because of that, because we're all so used to these things about this general category, they have to f- you have to find new ways to get people convinced because once once they feel the product, once they have it, I know once I've – I recently tried the sock, socks yesterday. I'm like, shit, I need like 20 pairs of these socks. Okay, yeah. And so they have like a thing of sending out a free pair called the mystery sock. Okay. Where they get to choose. You try the sock uh, for free. Don't have yeah. to pay any money, just shipping. And then in almost all cases, they come back and buy like two, yeah. three hundred dollars worth sense. of sock. Yeah. So I was curious, you know, obviously when that happens, it means – you know, the business grows, you get more cash flow and revenue, which goes back into further, further developing the supply chain and the product itself Mm. and making it better, increasing USPs like the zipper that you were Mm. talking about. So for you guys as a business, what intrigues you the most long-term? Are you guys looking at developing your own threads? Are you guys thinking um, about… Fundamentally, the actual so Eden Cotton, our core range, has been developed differently. So um, I think everyone knows, you know, you grow up with 900 thread count Egyptian cotton. That's what everyone talks about. Our mums spoke about it forever. And, oh, um, yeah, and, you know, buy Sheridan, 900 thread count, that's what you do. And people love to say, well, I only sleep on 900 thread count and this is what I do. And I won't try and go into it because I'll do no justice to it and <laughs> Hayley will probably cry you trying to <laughs> listen to me talking about it. But it's basically the way that she's developed the weave has, I think it's the weave, to change. So our, we've got a sateen cotton that's 400 thread count. Okay. So it just means our surface level of um, the way that we do the weave is larger. It's, there's four over, one under, four over, one under, as opposed to Egyptian cotton is under, over, under, over. Okay. Um, and it sounds like a really kind of kind of a complex thing, but fundamentally we have to we use 400 thread count instead of 900. It brings the price down. It brings the ability for people to purchase it. Um, it, it makes that higher because it's an easier price point to get in. Um, into. So you can buy a full set for a couple of hundred and it's been developed to be a stronger product. Yeah. So what that was what she really did right from the start is, hey, let me stop and think about what people need. They need to not have to buy 900 thread count. They need to be able to put a zipper on to the product. So at the core, it is very much um, function and also form. So those two things work intrinsically together, but she did think about the product um, first and foremost. Yeah. 
Because then it means that it's it's easy to purchase it. It's a bit cheaper. Everyone can get in. It's it's not as scary. So the 21-year-old girls that we've started to carve out a new market in, those girls that now want to be part of this Sheet Society brand and want to purchase it, but they don't have the disposable income that a 30-year-old might have. So they can buy Eden Cotton now Yeah. Um, and they can get in. And then we've got the 35-year-old women who want to go and buy the linen and that's great. They can get in too. So we've been able to start um, bringing out a different demo that might have been shopping at Kmart yeah. or might have been the iconic and they're not even really interested. That, that's what I love about these brands, these D2C brands, is because it opens things up. We were actually talking about this. We are walking around the park last night getting our steps up and I was like, what's going to happen with all this? Like we're still in the early stages. Like if I'm only shopping for my socks at Pear and I only get my luggage at July and I only get my sheets at Sheet Society, like what does that do to the shopping experience? Do... The people who, and I, I guess I'm curious for your opinion, do the people who ultra specialize, like only focus on sheets, succeed? Or do you have to increasingly offer further products that are somewhat related? Because this is sort of the question I had with Pear last night. Yeah. Um, well, we will always do trend lines. So one of the big things that Hayley does, so Hayley came from fast fashion. So she was, um, uh, okay. she um, was a tiger mist and she was their product designer. So she was churning through fast fashion there. So she has a trend and a fashion mind. So that helps for if, um, so for instance, corduroy was all the rage a couple of years ago. So when corduroy was all the rage, she recognized that and then she brought corduroy through into uh, the bedding. So the one thing that Hayley does really well is she recognizes the fashion trends that are coming through, say, you know, in the runway or overseas, and then brings those through into the, the category of bedding. That won't ever change. So the yeah, fashion true, lines true. will always come through. So even though we have our core ranges and our signature ranges that underpin everything that the business does, we have these fashion lines that come through and really throw um, something, a bit of newness into it and make something um, really exciting for our audience. So we did tie-dye at the start of the year because tie-dye was <laughs> everywhere on in fashion. <laughs> yeah. um, we, that's another example, boucle. We've, we released boucle last year because boucle was all the rage in, as bedheads and chairs and stuff. Yeah, right. So what, and so she has to develop that product. It's not like you can just go and get bedding, um, boucle made for bedding, we've got to go and actually develop that product with yeah. the manufacturer. But um, that's what she does. And that is going to be what continues to make us different is our fast reactive um, way that we can get to market quickly with fashion trends. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, tie-dye, fucking hell. Yeah. I, I just remember well, that Well, the 21-year-old girls, the 22-year-old yeah, girls love it. And they were Urban Outfitters iconic just buying tie-dye tops. And yeah. suddenly we said, hey, you can have an extension of who you are and what you would wear can be on your bed too now. But you're so right about the fashion component because when I think about it, like our agency is focused on challenger brands. We are full service digital. We've got this talent component that we've slowly developed, which has allowed us to really start to specialize in TikTok. Okay, yeah. And to me, tie-dye is now like almost out of fashion because of what was happening on <laughs> yeah. TikTok and like how tie-dye was the thing from like sort of November, December up until maybe Feb. And now I don't. I see less tie-dye related stuff on TikTok, and now I feel like we're full on into the nineties in terms yeah, of yeah, totally we are fashion, yeah, hundred um, percent. So, but it's really interesting uh, just being involved in that sort of stuff and seeing that permeate into yeah. fashion yeah. and trends. Marketing progression. I guess this is one of the key things I'm interested in. You, I think you've said it in previous interviews. People are at different stages. Sometimes you just need time. 
to sort of build yourself as a marketer. And I know I've said it in previous interviews where it's having an understanding of the basics, then you're more intermediate. So you're looking at more enhanced targeting content data and understanding all that sort of stuff. And then I think you move into sort of the more complex, which is the CMO role, which is way more people management, way more financial management, and way more being a product brain mm. slash person or a, a brand person, let's let's call mm. it. Other than time, which I know is just a necessity, what do you think has been the number one thing that's helped mm. you as a marketer develop that understanding? Um, I probably knew that my fast-paced reactive nature needs to be in startup. Okay. So I, I I remember saying to myself in my early 20s, I'm going to be the CMO of Country Road in my 30s. I'm going to do it. <laughs> and I would say now that's not something that I need to do at all. I have taken a different path and it's absolutely the path that I is best for me. But what I can see that if I had have gone through that trajectory and if I had have gone through, say, the start of Country Road and I had have worked my way up through, you know, doing the digital marketing manager, then I came the senior digital marketing manager and, you know, went through that way, I wouldn't have learnt as much about business if I hadn't have come, if I went that way than doing it the way that I've done it through startup. So uh, when okay. I, so yeah. Frank Green was, you know, was startup in a lot of ways. And what I had access to in terms of manufacturing, logistics, operations, um, that whole area, you know, you don't get that in those bigger businesses. I, I wouldn't have had a country road or a sports girl, any of those places, access to understanding the logistics and the supply chain and working with the product teams and stuff. So I think that's probably been one of the biggest things is I've chosen roles where I can get a full set or I can get a bigger skill set from really diversifying what we're working on. That's been mm. really big. But I also say that I, yeah, it is time. It's a lot of time. And I remember <laughs> at 25, that, you know, 26, if someone had to say that to me, I would have been like, whatever, yeah, I'm great, don't, I don't need time. <laughs> but you do, and I think it's not even just um, for your career, it's actually for personally what's going on with you as well. Yeah. As you progress through the stages and you have share houses and then you maybe buy your first home or you get a dog or, you know, whatever happens, there's so many things that I think personally happen to you in your 20s and early 30s that shape who you are and then shape how you are in your career. Yeah. And I think that you need that on the outside as well as on the inside. So, yes, the last year and a half or what a year and a bit that I've been with the Sheet Society has been a very career-defining um, role it has only been allowed to be that because of me over the last 10 years of what I've done, yeah. both in and out of my career. Yeah, I was going to say, because the people who are very career-driven, you would need to make an argument or you need to really say to them, you need life experience. Mm. How do you get life experience? Well, you can't always be working. Mm. You no. have to live your life, essentially. Totally. Even the way that I've been marketing over the last few months, as opposed to what I was doing last year, has changed because the world opened up again and we could, I could experience things again. Mm. So even having touch points outside home to change the way that I market has occurred. Um, yeah, and I, and I don't know. No one wants to hear that it's time because that means you're looking down the barrel of 10 years before you can. <laughs> but I also think it's a really enjoyable time and it's a time to kind of sit back and go, yeah, cool, I'm going to focus maybe on digital marketing or performance and I'm going to really um, fine-tune that skill. Uh, but I'm also going to take the leap and go to London, you know, when I can yeah. or whatever. I think those are the opportunities that I probably wasn't wanting to take as much because I really, I was just, I'm going to be a CMO and head of marketing. <laughs> like, I'm going to get there. And I think 
you know, I don't want to say I've made it, but I got to a role that I love and I've got to a position that I love um, and probably I wish I, yeah, probably just really um, specialised in those areas a little bit more but knew that it was going to take time and that was okay. In hindsight, when you look at your life thus far, do you think there are particular personal decisions and things that have gone on in your life that really gave you that experience, like mm. partners or travel or dogs or yep. house? <laughs> yeah. like, do you think there's something in particular? <laughs> yeah, that- there's nothing quite like getting dogs, I think, to really, really ground you. Um, so I'd say I've got a Labrador, Frankie, who I got um, a couple of years ago. She's been amazing. Um, I'd also say partners for me has been a really big thing. Letting different people kind of in has really helped to shape how I approach people inside work as well, yeah. getting kind of their insight. A um, lot of traveling. I've traveled the world for years and years. Um, I, you know, lived in uh, Madagascar for a couple of months really? um, when I first, when I was actually through uni. So I, you know, saw a third world country. I um, just lots of stuff like that. I think um, so many different um, people as well. I've got some amazing relationships from people that I've had through my career. Um, I've been amazing, a friend from Frank Green. I've got some great friends from Haynes Paint. And I think those people have shaped me as well and those, their input. And I'm I'm like a sponge. I just want to, I want to absorb people. And I think there's so <laughs> much that people can offer. And I am so fine to say, I don't know, and I don't get it. And help me. And I think that's probably what has led my led me to have all these relationships. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you about trends to finish things off, mm-hmm. but maybe I'll ask you, what do you think won't change about direct-to-consumer slash e-com brands over the next couple of years? Um, I think customers are going to continue to only get smarter and smarter. We've already seen that. They don't they don't want just some influencer standing there holding something saying buy it. They're so much smarter than that now. I don't think that's going anywhere. I think yeah. if anything, they're only going to get better and better in that space. Um, I think we're going to continue to see um, people moving more to sort of, the, yeah, to the DNC brands. I also think though, I just have this feeling that we might see more of the traditional marketing coming back, billboards, newspapers, that kind of yeah. stuff. I just feel like when it swings one wave too far, it just naturally has to swing back. So that kind of interests me a bit. I'm doing a pop-up in Chadston this weekend for two weeks okay. where we're doing kind of a really like experiential kind of um, installation type of thing. Um, we really want people to experience the brand. You can't actually buy the product there. You can order the product online with us and we'll send it to you but it's about experiencing the brand in a Mm. big eight by eight space. So things like that, I think we're going to see a lot more of because we have to take it, I think, offline to then get it back online. Yeah. Um, Well, it's funny you mention that because, yeah, that's if you looked at it two years ago, that's what Amazon started doing is buying brick and mortar stuff. mm, Yeah. Um, I don't know if you know of Stratechery, the blog. It talks about tech strategy. It's like the big thing in tech at the moment is actually going offline. Yeah, totally. And I, I think even as a customer, I want that. I want to sometimes go offline, really consume it to then go online and buy it. I'll go sometimes to Chadston or wherever I shop around and then go home and buy it. Um, I think a lot of people want that experience online. For us, your sheets come pre-washed. They come in a nice package. They come with a personalised note. People want that experience. So I do think there's a bit of that going on. But I I think, you know, fundamentally we're all just going to have to continue being smart about how we do things. We can't just keep throwing out brand awareness ads and think that we're going to be (laughs) doing the best job ever. Yeah, yeah. It has to change and um, our customers are smarter and 
sponsored posts need to be better and content needs to be better and needs to really hit home. So um, I think there's a lot of opportunities, but I really think we need to not get too analytical with the way that we look at some of this stuff and actually step back and go, as a consumer, what does that person fundamentally want? Because what do I want? And then what does mum want? Go with the gut more. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) Uh, Kate, thank you so much for coming in. How can people find you and the Sheet Society on the interwebs? Yeah, so thesheetsociety.com. Okay. Um, I'm just Kate Howard at LinkedIn. Okay. Sheet Society (laughs) on Instagram is probably the one place to go for us. Yeah. Uh, We'll link all of that, of course, in the show notes, plus everything we've chatted about today. But um, Kate Howard, thanks for coming in. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks.